The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast, the clock ticking toward another potential supply chain time bomb. We are just hours away from a massive rail strike that would shut down train traffic from coast to coast. We'll get the latest in negotiations and detail the looming economic devastation. Plus, sobering comments from the CEO of McDonald's, the fast food giant delivering a downbeat message about the U.S. economy, China, and the road ahead for Europe. Also, his brutally honest take on the future of the McPlant burger. And later, our list of boring but beautiful stocks for a rough and tumble market. Inside the Netflix plan for streaming with commercials and Fed watchers are all over the map with what Powell should do next. We'll get the traders to choose their own rate hike adventure. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Bono and Eisen, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Jeff Mills. And we start off with a countdown to a rail strike that could crush consumers. We are fast approaching Friday's deadline for rail carriers and union leaders to reach an agreement on sick leave and quality of life policies. If the two sides cannot come to terms and workers go on strike, that could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day and wreak havoc on the retail, auto, and construction industries, which are still grappling with supply chain and inventory issues. Negotiations being closely watched by the White House right now. Kayla Tausch has been following all the developments. Joins us now with the very latest. Kayla. Melissa, here at the Department of Labor, negotiators are entering their ninth hour of talks just a little more than a day before that strike could set in. Earlier today, we saw leadership from the two original union holdouts arriving here, representing half of all rail workers, to meet with railroads and the administration with all parties hoping to make a deal. But they're discussing a pretty narrow proposal from unions on paid and unpaid time off. A neutral presidential emergency board appointed by President Biden put forth a compromise position on wages and health care about a month ago, but so-called work rules are out of its jurisdiction. Earlier today, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the board's report puts the onus of resolving differences on the parties themselves, not by Congress. But the problem is railroads are already understaffed, having laid off 45,000 workers in recent years. And union presidents don't really have much wiggle room at all from their members. For instance, the machinist union workers reject rejected the tentative deal reached by its leaders uh, with other unions, and now they have another two weeks to reach their own deal. In a statement, it said it will continue pushing forward. It calls a fair contract that ensures members and their families are treated with the respect they deserve. Meanwhile, just a few uh, yards from here at the Capitol building, Senate Republicans have put forward their own proposal. In it, it would essentially impose the recommendations by the presidential board and avert a strike, but so so far, as of this hour, with negotiators still here talking, there's not enough support for that proposal. Melissa? 
Is there anything that the administration could do should there be a strike to use emergency powers to make sure that certain things actually get transported to where they need to go? Well, that's what they're working on so far, Melissa, trying to identify which emergency powers they have and how and which uh, items actually could be transported by things like ships, by air, by trucks. But the problem is uh, a lot of those staffers are in short supply, too, with lots of pinches in the supply chain over the last 18 months or so. And so even though they're doing some of that work, it's expected that there's more contingency planning that's needed and there could be some real hiccups if there are disruptions going forward. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Very inflationary, isn't this, Dan? Yeah. I mean, and, and coming at a time where we just had one of the worst days in the stock market in, in two years because of fears of inflation, when I think a lot of investors were hoping that it was going to be in the rearview mirror. And then you start thinking about all of these things from the supply chains globally and the issues that we've had and how it is just not easy to kind of shake them. And once we start talking about deglobalization and reshoring, we know that's inflationary. And then if our modes of transportation internally here are not going to be working the way we hope to be. So, again, you know, there's also um, uh, impact as far as wages are concerned. I think that was a really good point that you just made is like, what are some alternative forms of transportation? We know that other, we know that UPS and we know that FedEx and we know some of these other um, you know, ground haulers have had issues as it relates to labor shortages. So again, I, I don't expect this to last very long. I think that we know that a lot of these sorts of, um, you know, kind of negotiations go down to the wire and maybe goes into a couple days. But the one point I would just say is that when you think about how hard stocks were hit yesterday, it really is about visibility that these companies have on earnings and the inputs that they have and their ability to pass through a consumer that feels like it's getting tapped. So I guess the more uncertainty we have, the harder it's going to be for the stock market to deal with this in the near term. Even if it doesn't last for a couple of days, wages will go higher for these uh, two companies. And that's certainly not a good thing for them. Um, At the same time, even they can't just flip a switch, Karen. I mean, there are shipments that are already being stopped chemicals, hazardous materials, because they're afraid that there won't be enough workers to ensure the security of those types of goods. You don't flip a switch and just say, you know what, chlorine, go where you need to go. It takes a while to get that started up again. Yeah, so that's why it's very, inf- very inflationary and then potentially ultimately deflationary mm. if you start to get a recession, right? So that would be if it drags on. So your question to Kayla I thought was really interesting. What are the powers that the, the administration has? I was surprised at her answer. They're looking into that. I would think it's happened before. It's happened before. And it was probably better to start before today, given that tomorrow is the deadline. This obviously for the Biden administration, leaving politics out of it, just just in terms of regardless of what you think is the right outcome, they have got to they have got to solve this problem, whether it's very in a very behind the scenes way or out there in front. I'm not really sure, but. This would be really bad for them on the heels of that inflation number yesterday. You know, I, I think each time we kind of have uh, one of these bearish type of scares, it's, it's human nature to say, OK, well, this time is different. Oh, this isn't the, the OPEC shock of previous times. And this time it's it's not no longer the supply chain disruption. And we the truth of the matter is, as Dan said, you really don't have clarity as to what is going to shock this market. And it's that uncertainty, which surprises me, given that the VIX is only in the mid 20s. But it's that uncertainty that shows just the fragility of this market in the recent rally that we've had, um, without a doubt. This is possible inflationary pressures coming at like the worst possible time from a market standpoint and from an elective standpoint. So, you know, I would expect this to get kind of nipped in the bud relatively soon. Uh, To Karen's point in terms of what what their powers are, I think they 
have a bit more say in terms of um, wages, compensation, things of that nature, but working conditions. I think the sticking point really is overstaffing. And we've talked about um, how efficient the worker has become. But I think perhaps we're kind of at a breaking point there in terms of how over how understaffed can you be and still have uh, the, the requisite productivity? Yeah. And, um, you know, this doesn't happen. This potential strike doesn't happen when things are going perfectly smoothly to begin with in terms of transporting things to where they need to go, Jeff. I mean, we're sort of building upon previous problems that seem to start to mend. This is not, uh, you know, something that you want to hear about at this point. Yeah, I think it's insult to injury on two important fronts. One, just relative to the broad market and thinking about the potential for inflationary pressures uh, and what that might mean for stock multiples. I mean, just do really simple math here. Say if 2023 EPS stays where it is right now at 243, which I question, and then the current multiple stays where it is too, 17 times. That means the upside on the S&P 500 to the end of the year is like 4,100. I mean, it's not much. So anything beyond that is going to require some multiple expansion. So anything that's potentially inflationary that could potentially lead to higher interest rates, we've talked about the correlation between rates and PEs. That PE expansion is unlikely when we get news like this. And then just very quickly, specifically back to the rails, not looking at the retail impact, but the actual rail companies. We looked at a chart a number of months ago back in March, and I just showed the relative performance of Union Pacific versus the S&P 500. We charted that up against the ISM. You can very clearly see that the underperformance of rails will follow the underperformance of the economy. And lo and behold, that underperformance has continued. The relative performance of the rails, as represented by UMP, has hooked lower. So strike, no strike. I think the macroeconomic backdrop alone is not necessarily good for loading up on the rails right now. Yeah, and Karen made a really good point. It's that near term, it's inflationary. Longer term, it's deflationary. Because think about what we saw like with, with semiconductors. We saw a lot of double ordering given the uncertainty about the ability to get those products. This is over the last year and a half or so. And we know that a lot of retailers, for instance, are dealing with um, really high inventories right now due to the lack of visibility as it relates to consumers and the uh, supply chain issues. So now, all of a sudden, in front of the holiday selling season, if this thing were to go longer than we think and we see a lot of double orders, it may not be that the retailers get out of the the woods, we're going to see very promotional sort of activity, and then we may end up with like really high, uh, you know, inventories after that. Yeah, we're just getting comments from uh, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh saying that both sides need to quote move a little in order in order to uh, resolve this dispute. It doesn't really sound like a good situation when the Labor Secretary has to plot, uh, you know, poke both sides and, and help them along here. Karen, I don't want to sound Grinchy, but I'm going to risk sounding Grinchy. Okay, Grinch, what do you got? Um, <laughs> th- it, it seems like a terrible setup. You know, inventories were already very high. They just started working them down. And you would think during normal times, holiday inventory would be in warehouses, maybe not this time around. So if they are going to still come by ship or by rail or a combination of those two things, it really seems like it could be in jeopardy if there is a strike. It could be. I'm not sure how much of the... Holiday ordering has already been received. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right? We saw those big inventory issues where Target literally, like, we literally have nowhere else to put anything. Right. Yeah. right. So uh, I'm not sure how much has been received, but it's, God, it just seems so dangerous for both sides, right? For the, I mean, for the rails themselves. Also, we saw that those stocks actually just took it on the chin today. And then obviously for the economy, I mean, everything is touched by the rails some one way or another. And then also for the administration. So you would think that there should be 
right? There should be an outcome where it gets resolved. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this is a game of chicken to the end. I, I guess it's also possible we see a, the deadline extended a little and we right. get a little reprieve. That is a, that is a possibility. For more on how this potential strike could impact retail, the holiday season, the overall economy, let's bring in former president and CEO at Walmart U.S., Bill Simon. Bill, great to have you back. Um, what what normally happens at this time of year from a retailer standpoint in terms of bringing holiday inventory in and what is happening this year, given all the issues that the sector has faced? Well, it, good to be with you this afternoon. It, it is an interesting story. Uh, normally in a normal year, um, not sure when the last normal year was, probably 2019 at this point, um, the product has already flowed. It's 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 arrived at port. It's been transported by rail. And then, uh, and then by truck to the distribution centers uh, for, for further distribution into the stores. So in a normal year, uh, this would be a disruption, but it wouldn't be a disruption to the ho- particularly to the holiday sales. This year is anything but normal. We've had backups at the ports. We've had backups um, in Asia. We've had backups at the U.S. ports. We've had trucking delays. Um, we finally just started unwinding that um, to the point where product was flowing to the earlier guest comment, to the point where inventories had gotten high in stores because it had flowed faster than they had anticipated. And now uh, this this would just be a, a disastrous blow to retail. Um, uncertain still whether it would affect the holiday selling season, likely somewhat affected, but um, more so the, the transition from holiday into the next selling season would be interrupted in, in, in a dramatic way. Um, if you were still the head of Walmart U.S., Bill, I'm wondering how you would think about the situation in terms of what you would be doing right now, uh, in terms of what you would anticipate uh, when it comes to bringing goods in and whether or not this would cause shortages um, come holiday season. Well, this, at this point, moving goods, is, it's, it's probably too late. Anything that I had in the warehouse that I could get mm-hmm. to the store by by uh, over the road would would certainly be moving, but that's really not what the issue is. It's when these big container ships land in ports like Long Beach, um, they need to be offloaded to rail so they can be moved halfway across the country efficiently um, and then put on a truck and moved into the distribution system. There's really no way that you're gonna be able to replace uh, this this rail freight with with trucks or, or air freight. It's just not possible. So we're gonna see massive backlogs first at our ports and then secondly backing up to the ports uh, uh, you know uh, in Asia and in other markets that are exporting um, the thing I'd be doing if I were in place right now is be pounded on the table in in front of the the, the government that there's there's got to be some intervention and the comments from the labor secretary boy everybody has to give a little bit that's not really very helpful uh, they really need to sit down and not leave the room until a deal's done that's the kind of intervention that we need. Uh, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. When you, I don't know if you were in a situation like this, but when you see this kind of potential impasse looming, um, how do you prepare for this when you really don't know what the outcome will be, but you know the downside of a strike is really going to be terrible for your business? Yeah, you've got to move goods as best you can while you can. Um, and so if there's anything in the port, get it on a train, get it moving so that you can get it into your distribution system. Push as many goods as you can into the store, even if they're going to be crowded. And then you got to try to hold your prices as long as you can, because there's going to be, if this strike lasts any time at all, there's going to be massive inflationary pressures because there's already a limited supply of 
of over the road trucks to haul goods. And if you try to move it from the ports by truck, it's just gonna drive the, 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 the freight costs even higher. So try to hold your prices, try to get push product as far forward in the supply chain as you can right now, and then really start pounding the table for some kind of an answer. When you say, Bill, uh, if this la- if the strike lasts any period of time, do you really mean that? I mean, if it's a day, you know, will it really have consequential impacts? I think it's already starting to slow things down. As, mm-hmm. as heard earlier, you know, you can't ship products that need attention. You know, chemicals, dangerous chemicals, petroleum, fuels, um, and not know that and, and think that they might end up stuck on a on a rail line somewhere in the middle of you know, the middle of the Rocky Mountains. So product's already starting to slow down. It, you know, if it lasts a day or two, I think we probably kind of don't, you know, recover pretty quickly. If it lasts a week or two, it's going to be really, really damaging, really okay. significant inflationary pressures, I would think. Bill, always great to get your take. Thanks for joining us. Bill Simon. Um, I do want to make a correction. We got those comments from the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, not the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. So Pete Buttigieg, same message, though, and that is he's saying both sides have got to give a little. That doesn't really augur well for the resolution of this dispute. Um, it is shocking to hear Bono and Bill Simon say if it lasts a, a week, it, it's going to be really terrible for the economy. Well, he said that, and he also mentioned that there's already some fall through yeah. from from what we already have. And as you said, like the those products that need an attentional level of uh, detail or logistics or security, things of that nature. I mean, really make this more complicated. Adding fuel to the fire is a lack of slack capacity within trucking. Um, it's it's not just about pricing, and he mentioned that, and I no argument there. Mm-hmm. But even if you could pay the price, the capacity isn't there. So what's the substitute? I mean, it's, there, there's no way around inflation, at least in the short term, if this is not nipped in the bud, which I would assume that it is in a relatively short period of time. You know, I was checking today, Jeff, on retail, and there seemed to be very little reaction uh, to this. And I'm wondering if you think there is some danger there to this trade in particular. Well, I, I think that there has to be, especially given Bill's comments and just understanding how this situation could evolve. But the, the problem is we don't know how quickly it's going to be solved and we don't know what the ultimate impact is going to be on some of these retailers and their ability to meet demand come the holiday season. I, I'm sort of thinking as we we're talking about this, and, and this might be totally off base, but I'm wondering if certain retailers are actually better positioned than others. We obviously have this high inventory problem. So does that serve as some sort of a cushion come holiday season where they can work some of that off, meet some of the demand? Or is there just a complete inventory mismatch in terms of the product they would be receiving for the holiday season? trying to think through whether that would be helpful for certain companies over others. But I still think about positioning somewhat defensively more generally in retail. So thinking about companies like a Walmart or a Dollar General are then going up market and looking at Nike and Lulu. I think just trying to think broadly and putting this to the side, that's still where I would want to focus my energy. I mean, maybe some people want lawn furniture. That's for exactly <laughs> what I was thinking, right? Here's a chance for them to get rid of the patio furniture right. that was such a problem. I don't know if they just dumped it during this last quarter, but maybe they do have the inventory. And then what happens when ultimately those goods are freed up and you get the rest of the goods right. and, and when you're right you get back it. at it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Christmas sweaters and, we, you know, uh, um, right. you, so I don't know. It's it's Christmas in July. In July. Okay. Uh, um, 
this is a, they've got to solve this issue. It's so bad for the administration. Yeah, I'll just say this about Walmart. I mean, because we're talking about Walmart. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, think about the couple gaps that this stock has had. You know, they had that pre-announcement. The stock gap down like 10 percent, filled in the whole gap. Then it rallied back. And then they, uh, you know, they had the, the better than expected numbers because they beat the pre-announcement. And then it filled in that entire gap. And I think investors are really uncertain in this space right now, even in a name like Walmart, who probably is best equipped to deal with all of these pressures. Coming up, did somebody say McTrouble ahead? McDonald's updating investors on what is next for the fast food chain. The CEO laying out his list of fear factors here and around the world. Plus, Powell possibilities with just one week until the next Fed meeting. How will the central bank act? We'll lay out what to expect when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. McDonald's CEO Chris Kamchinski sounding off on a host of challenges ahead from recession fears in the U.S. to trouble in Europe and wage pressures out in California. He spoke today at the Chicago Economic Club. CNBC's Kate Rogers listening in on the action is here with the very latest. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. McDonald's CEO Chris Kemchinski was there in conversation with newly appointed Foot Locker CEO Mary Dillon. Kemchinski talking about challenges in operations, mentioning zero COVID in China being a big hurdle, but not as challenging as the energy crisis in Europe right now and what that means for both consumers and operators there. Take a listen. So I do think as I look out to 2023, I'm expecting a more challenging 2023 certainly in Europe, but I think globally. I think we are headed into probably a hopefully minor recession in the U.S. and probably a more significant recession in Europe. On the Fast Recovery Act, the law just signed by California Governor Gavin Newsom, he expressed some frustration, saying from the company's vantage point, it was a, quote, terrible piece of policy that picks winners and losers as it regulates restaurants in the state with more than 100 locations. Finally, he talked about things that have come and gone from the menu. He said, quote, if you want the McPlant, buy the McPlant, alluding to potentially some soft sales of that Beyond Meat patty, saying that items that haven't sold well don't stay on the menu. That test in the U.S. concluded as planned, the company said about a month ago. So it remains to be seen if that comes back, Melissa, as a permanent menu addition. But interesting context from him on all those different topics today, for sure. Is Europe a big percent of revenues, Kate? Uh, It's certainly an important market for them, as is China. You know, 
U.S. is the most important uh, for all of these big companies, but he seemed to be more concerned about it as uh, more concerned than he is about a recession here in the United States, for sure. All right. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Jeff Bills, I don't know how I feel about those comments. It sounds pretty depressing all around. Or are we excited that he's saying he only expects maybe a minor recession in the U.S.? Well, I, I think one of the reasons you want to own this stock is in economic slowdowns, right? It, it's one of these high-quality businesses, sort of recession-proof, strong free cash flows, growing dividend. I mean, all of those things are in McDonald's favor right now in terms of owning the stock at this very minute. But I think investors are certainly paying a premium right now because of that macro backdrop. And if you look at the valuation at 26 times forward, I think it's thereabouts. Uh, I, I don't know that the long-term return potential of the stock here is really where you want it to be. So I think from a tactical short-term perspective, you know, own the stock, I like it, but a buy and hold, I think it's probably challenged and you can do better elsewhere. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the stock acts very well. It's down 5% on the year. And even with these comments, however you wanted to interpret them, the stock still closed up on a day that was kind of, you know, mixed, I think, in the action in general. But when you talk about the things that he's addressing, and again, I mean, this was a 2023 call, and there's a lot of time for some things to play out. But 40% of their sales are here in the U.S. And you just think about the surging dollar, some of these supply chain issues we talked about, food inflation. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think this is really going to be a theme. If you're excited about some companies or stocks that you've owned and how they've operated in a difficult environment over the course of this year. I don't think that commentary is about to get better as we get towards the end of Q3 and we start thinking about what Q4 um, guidance looks like. And, and listen, if you're a CEO and you're saying we got a week or two left here in this quarter, they're probably saying don't pull anything forward from Q4 to Q3. Like, let's just get that out of the way. Let's guide down for Q4. Let's be a little murky for 2023 and set expectations low. Yeah. Uh, we got a market flash here on Danaher. Shares are popping after the MedTech company said it plans to spin its environmental and applied solutions into a separate publicly traded company. The company also giving better than expected revenue guidance for the current quarter. Um, Jeff, you've liked this one. Yeah, this is a stock that we've liked a lot. I think it's great for this particular environment as well. I've talked about it as being kind of a less speculative play on biotech. They have a really large percent of their sales are recurring revenues. So I think the higher revenue guide, sort of something that we hope for and expected, and we like to see that move in the stock. I think the spinoff is useful, right? It's their environmental business. It's water quality, product identification. It's sort of aside from really what their core business is. So I like that focus. I think investors like that focus, especially in this market. So I think this is one that you can stick with for a while. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's up next. Power probability. One week to the next Fed meeting. And it's anyone's guess to how much they'll raise. But our next guest says there's only one option for the central bank. The details next. Plus, advertise advantage. Shares at Netflix getting a boost on some new additions to the platform. Will the changes bring a squid game surge? Or be a Bridgerton bust? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to Fast Money, a mostly uneventful session for a change on Wall Street. This following the worst session yesterday since June of 2020. The Nasdaq, the best performer of the major averages. Moderna, Starbucks, Airbnb, the big winners. The Dow and the S&P eked out small gains. While investors took a bit of a breather today, Fed watchers fired up their predictables to game out what Powell will do next week when the Fed makes its decision on interest rates. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers wants a full point hike next week. Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line Capital is calling for a quarter point move. And Tesla's Elon Musk wants a quarter point drop. So we put it to the traders. Which do you choose, Bonowin? 75 basis points. Unwavering. Unwavering. I, I don't see any reason. The two that are calling for 25 and a 25, 25 bit drop, I think that's delusional, to put it politely. Um, I think the Fed's been very clear. The fact that we're in a blackout period and they can't make commentary perhaps add a l- adds a little bit of, um, you know, uh, a shroud of unknown around that. But I think the Fed has been very steadfast. And every time we doubt them, they come out and they make a statement reinforcing just how hawkish they are. So I have no reason to, to doubt them. I think it's 75 basis points uh, without a doubt for me. I think that maybe I wasn't clear in terms of the nuance of this question. What do you think the Fed should do as opposed to what do you think the Fed will do? Because the notion behind Jeffrey Gunlock and Elon Musk's um, hope that uh, the Fed will slow down uh, what it's doing is that the economy hasn't felt the impact of the rate hikes that have put, been put in place already. And so by going full steam ahead, we could actually be driving the economy uh, into a recession more quickly, more deeply, whatever, you know, qualifier you want to put there. Mm -hmm. I think, well, it is somewhat of a blunt instrument that they have, but I agree with Bonwin. I think 75 is the course. They've said it. That's what you would want them to do. That's what I want them to Mm -hmm. do and what I think, yeah, that's what I think they should do. And it is also what I think they will do. And we can then let's see how the data goes and they can adjust a little bit after instead of, that would be a pivot. Right. And I don't think pivot is great for them right now. Yeah, Yeah, I would just say this. I mean, uh, again, I'm going to be a little contrarian here. I I actually think they should go a full one percent. I think the CME FedWatch tool is pricing in maybe a 25 percent chance of that. And here's the thing. Why? I mean, we saw what happened to the stock market one day when it became very clear that they were not going to do 50. They're going to do 75 or at least that was a projection. Why not do a little more? Continue to front end load this thing. We already see housing data rolling over. We know that they're very focused on the housing market. And then the last piece of the puzzle is is going to be employment. And so, again, you know, I think if they keep continually one step forward, two steps back, or however they want to do it and, and kind of talk back their increases or their rate hikes, I don't think it's going to do the job that they hope to do. And they seem very committed to doing it. So why not just go big and, you know, see what happens? Well, Summers wants uh, a full point because he thinks that the Fed has to show that it means business yeah. when it comes to fighting inflation. Jeff, um, where do you stand on this all? Yeah, I mean, I think the Fed should go 75 at this point. Uh, it's The market is braced for it, so why not do it? I think the trajectory of inflation is up for debate. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. So take what's in front of you, do that. But to your point earlier, even if we get some sort of a pause, I think this policy is going to hit us with a lag. So what's done is done, and there's going to be an impact on earnings. There's going to be an impact on the economy, kind of regardless of what they do over the next couple of quarters. Our next guest expects a 75 basis point hike next week and more hikes after that. Longtime bear David Rosenberg runs Rosenberg Research. He's known for serving as Merrill Lynch's top economist from 2002 to 2009. David, always good to speak with you. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be on. So I'm going to pose the same question to you. You're saying that you expect 75. That's a completely different question from what do you think the Fed should do at this point? What do you think the Fed should do? 
Well, uh, I'd be pausing right now uh, and assessing all the tightening that's already been put into the system. Uh, I mean, I know that we're talking incessantly about inflation, uh, but the economy is flat in its back right now, and inflation's a lag indicator. Um, but this Fed is bent on focusing on contemporaneous or lagging indicators, uh, and uh, 75 basis points is baked in the cake because Powell basically put us on watch for that move after Jackson Hole, irrespective of uh, the CPI number yesterday. So what do you think is going to be the consequences of the 75 basis point hike that you think will happen next week? If the economy is already flat on its back and you think the Fed should actually do nothing next week, yeah. um, what happens? Right. Well, look, it's, it's, I mean, I'm saying that I'd be pausing on rates. They're, don't forget they're doubling up on quantitative tightening, uh, and uh, that's going to be an ongoing source of policy restraint, uh, whether they pause on interest rates or not. Um, they're raising rates and uh, reducing the size of their balance sheet in rather dramatic fashion into an inverted yield curve. Uh, and uh, that is going to sow the seeds for uh, a recession if we're not already in one. I can respect uh, those that say that uh, we might not be in one already, um, but it's staring us in the face. Uh, so the consequence is that we're going to have a recession. I guess we can argue, will it be deep or will it be mild? The question is, what ends up getting us out of it? And I think what happens as an economist is that the supply and demand curves uh, start to uh, intersect the other way, and we go back into an, a deflationary environment like we did in 2009. Hey, David, Jeff Mills here. So I want to ask about that inverted yield curve, specifically long-term interest rates. Given your view on the economy right now, do you feel like we've seen a top in long-term interest rates? And then does that translate into the way we should thinking about market leadership? Does, does, if, the, if the market starts to believe we've seen a top in rates, uh, what does that mean for what outperforms, what underperforms? Well, look, I'd like to believe that we've seen a peak uh, in Treasury yields. Uh, you know, the 10-year, I mean, that would be a brave soul to make that call right now when we're a handful of basis points away from hitting a new cycle high. Uh, this whole run-up in Treasury yields hasn't really been about inflation or inflation expectations. Uh, they've been actually remarkably stable. I mean, we just got, look, we just got the new, before the CPI number, we got the New York Fed uh, Consumer Survey, and the three-year median inflation expectation went from 3.18% in July to 2.76% uh, in August. That's the lowest since October 2020. Uh, the Fed's focused on 12-month lagging inflation. Inflation expectations are actually the driver for long-term interest rates. So I'm actually quite heartened about that. But, you know, the Fed continues to take the carry away, and they continue to penalize investors for taking on duration risk. So that's why you're better off being at the front end of the curve. However, I will say that if my recession call comes to fruition, the long end of the curve, whether or not, you know, we haven't hit a peak yet, that's more of a, a trading or timing uh, you know, discussion. But if we go into recession, there's never been a recession, by the way, even in the stagnation uh, 1970s, the stagflation 1970s, uh, bond yields will come down in a recession. So I do think that no matter where the peak is, if you're going to give me six to 12 months time, I think yields out the curve are going to be quite a bit lower over the, uh, you know, through 2023, call it. David, always great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. David Rosenberg. Karen, what do you think? Uh, well, it's an interesting position that he has, that it's, it's not about inflation, that that's kind of a, not really the story, it's, it's the economy. I don't know that the economy is doing so badly. I mean, it's really hard always to, to see where we are, but coming out of the pandemic, out of the stimulus, 
it's extra really hard. Mm -hmm. So I sort of think they, uh, the Fed should do what they've said they're going to do because we need a Fed with credibility. Yeah, Anwin. Yeah, I think it makes an interesting point in terms of uh, pausing and assessing because there will be some lag and follow through. I, I would say like my, my counterpoint or caveat there would be that I think you run the risk of, as you just mentioned, really eroding credibility in a market that needs exactly that, that is looking uh, to, to, to have some like look through and really know what's, uh, what, what's, what's coming uh, to fruition here. So um, I can understand the arguments from both sides. Again, I think 75 basis points is what should happen, is will likely happen, because anything else will probably signal that there is a pivot. And I think then the Fed is behind the eight ball in terms of trying to make up for the work that they've kind of they've under, um, underscored or, or reversed. Coming up, a Netflix glow up shares getting a boost on potential changes to the streamer, how advertisers may be able to get in on this action. The details next, plus stocks just barely closing in the green after yesterday's brutal sell off. So we're homing in on one key metric that could tell us where markets are headed next. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Netflix jumping almost 3% on a report. The streaming giant expects its ad-supported plan to grow to 40 million unique viewers in the next year. Netflix hasn't released the full details of its ad tier yet. Julia Borson joins us with more. Julia. That's right, Melissa. The Wall Street Journal reporting that in addition to the target of 40 million unique viewers in the year, it's also targeting 4.4 million unique viewers worldwide by the end of this year, indicating that Netflix might start rolling out this ad-supported plan in November. So Netflix has refused to confirm any details. They just tell us that all of this is speculation, saying, quote, we are still in the early days of deciding how to launch a lower-priced ad-supported tier, and no decisions have been made. Analysts are waiting for those details. 60% have a hold rating on the stock, 27% have a buy, 13% have a sell or the equivalent. Now, Benchmark with a sell rating today writing, quote, while Netflix's AVOD effort could deliver 20 points plus an upside with exemplary execution, although early indications are Netflix is unrealistically aggressive on pricing. Given vanilla ad feature capabilities, especially personalization versus peers, and inadequate performance measurement. B of A with an underperform rating warning last week that ad-supported streaming is not a layup, even in the U.S., where ad prices are relatively high. Now, of course, the success of Netflix's ad-supported service depends a lot on how much it costs and whether the company raises prices on the ad-free service as Disney recently did. Melissa? Isn't there a concern, Julia, that customers who are paying full price will just you know, migrate downward and that there will be a certain amount of cannibalization? Well, yes, but the idea is that if Netflix does this right, that would be minimizing churn. And they should be able to figure out how to make sure that if customers are using the ad-supported service, that that's not any less profitable for them. Interestingly, Bob Chapek was just speaking at the Goldman Sachs Communicopia conference. I was just listening to that live stream, and he said that at best, I'm sorry, at worst, their ad-supported streaming subscribers for Disney Plus would be neutral. But they hope over the long term that it'll actually be more beneficial for them to have ads um, on that service. So I think long term, having ads could be beneficial. The question is just what is that ad experience like and whether or not they'll be able to bring in new subscribers, people who maybe never paid um, for Netflix, rather than just those who are they're preventing from turning out of the service. Right. Julia, thank you. Julia Vorston. 
Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's the main point, is that you really are just kind of stopping the whole churn problem altogether if you do have this ad-supported <laughs> structure. There's no reason why people shouldn't do it. And I'll just mention this, that the J.P. Morgan analyst, uh, Doug Anmuth, who made this call today, talking about it, and the stock had a nice little pop. You know, he's got a neutral rating and a $240 price target on it. The stock's 225 and you just heard Julia say how many analysts are on the sidelines yeah. of the stock. If they start to beat some of these numbers and the street gets greater confidence in all of this, this stock, which has acted really well relative to the market over the last couple of months, is going to go higher. There's a gap to be filled going back to the spring. So this one looks interesting to me. So I own Netflix. I bought the one share that aftermarket trade where which we tried a, to. Which was a snafu. You intended to buy yes. more than one. So but I did. One is so what I happens. did. Uh, I did buy more. Um, I, I'm sort of with Dan. I think that, you know, I like having a, you know, it's no longer the beloved darling that it was at 450, mm -hmm. which is sort of interesting. Right. And so I also think there are some positive things. Content cost has to be coming down. If we're at a day of reckoning for streaming, I think Netflix for sure will be the last man standing if there's only one. So at this multiple, I, I like it. I have a question. If we think that a recession could be coming down the road, we're talking about an ad-supported model. I don't know. This is, something doesn't make any sense, Jeff. You're going to launch an ad-supported model when, when everybody from McDonald's, which I would imagine is a major advertiser, saying that he expects a minor recession in the United States. Is this a good time to launch an ad-supported model and to believe that they can add all of those users to an ad-supported model at that moment in time? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I talked to our analyst who follows the company. He's generally positive on the stock. But he actually was saying that it, he thought it was a good time. I mean, you have some of these economic uh, issues that, that may present themselves. However, you also have a lot of companies, every company that he talks to, he's seeing them shifting more and more ad dollars to digital. So mm. you may have an overall reduction, but then that share of ad spending going to digital, maybe the timing actually is good. But I thought the most interesting thing that he said, and it was sort of off the cuff, but it, it made me think, is that the ad-based platform, in a way, kind of dilutes some of the concerns of the free riding, which I don't know really how they solve because ads is all about eyeballs. So whether those right. eyeballs are paying or not, it could still attract ad dollars to the company. So I thought that was interesting. All right. Coming up, is it time to bet on boring? If you're looking for some exciting returns, maybe it is. The stocks that no one is talking about that are posting impressive returns straight ahead. But first, looking for a bounce, we'll head to the options pits to break down what the traders are expecting for the benchmark index, those trades, and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The S&P 500 rallying in the final hour of trading, erasing earlier losses to end in the green. Options traders are betting the late rally is just the start of more gains to come. Bono and Eisen has the action. Bono in. Yeah, so we spotted some pretty unusual activity here in the, um, the SPY SEP 395 calls. Now, about 100,000 of those traded. And upon initial reflection, I would say this looks like a bullish call. But if you look at the open interest, it's about 150,000. So most of these trades are actually risk reducing or closing risk. And that is probably why we got that rally into the bell. But I would proceed with caution before reading into this as a longer term bullish trade. Option expiry Friday looks like people are taking chips off the table. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, a beautifully boring company posting very impressive returns in this volatile market. Hold the yawns because you might want to be buying the stock. We'll bring you the trade after this quick break.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Cue the crickets, because boring is beautiful. That is right. Take a look at some of these so-called boring stocks posting exciting returns this year. Grain company Archer Daniels, IT service provider Jack Henry, Hershey Merck, General Mills, the company General Mills, all with solid gains in 2022. So is boring your best bet? I'll go to our own General Mills. Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, I think it sort of is, and it's been that way for a while, just looking at relative performance in the broad market. I like a stock like AutoZone. I think I've talked about it before, but you look for good charts in tough markets, and I think this is one. It's been in that nice, steady uptrend, holding above the 200-day. You can't say that about a lot of stocks. I think the earnings growth holds up relatively well compared to a lot of other companies. I think people are looking to fix rather than buy cars right now, trading at a market multiple. So I think you stick stick with this boring one. Karen, how about you? Thank you for coming to me in a boring one. You know, like, <laughs> we'll go to Karen on that one. Um, so mine is CVS, and you all know CVS from the local, you know, local uh, uh, drug store, drugstore, right? But they are also CVS Caremark, which was Pharmacy Benefits, and then Aetna. So they're in the insurance business. They're in managing insurance, even if you don't insure, if you're not insured by them. Now they have the Signify deal. So they're building out in a, a very comprehensive healthcare structure. And yet, the stock, I think it's just under flat for the year. And uh, it's not expensive. It's like 11 or 12 PE. It pays a two and change percent dividend. And it is a steady, nicely growing company. They earn mid-single digits operating income. And uh, it's just a safe, boring place to be. For the record, Karen, I went to Jeff first on this segment. Okay, sorry, um, Jeff. Bonwin, where would you go here? Boring is, is, in fact, beautiful. And I'm going to stick with Coke. I think that's pretty plain vanilla as it comes, but I really want to emphasize this because we talk a lot about meme stocks and everything else that's very popular, high growth and all these high flyers that have all these bells and whistles, but part of your portfolio needs to be in low beta. I think this is about 50, uh, you know, half the beta, 0.5 beta, uh, strong free cash flow, dividend yield. These are names that, I mean, it's barely up 2%, but if you look at relative value versus the index, that's really where the money is made there. Plus 2% versus minus down, I don't know, 17% or so. I think this is a winner and the type of name that you should be looking at. Now, at 24 times, it's not exactly cheap vis-a-vis the market, but I would expect that multiple to actually increase. Final trades up next. Time for the final trade at Jeff Mills. It's a lesser known name that we own, PTC Inc. I think we learned again today that efficiency in supply chain is so critical. This is a company that helps with that. Very cheap relative to its own history. I think there's room to go here. Bono and Eisen. I keep my eye on volatility, and I would resist the urge to buy the dip until we get a meaningful spike there. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, so we just went through the whole, you know, safe, boring, where would you go to hide? If it's good enough for the E block and where would you go to hide, I don't have a better idea for the F block. (laughs) CVS, I like it. Dan Nathan. I see what you did there. Um, oh, hey, we la- didn't, we yeah. didn't go to you on the boring block. Uh, well, you know, save the most we, boring for last. We I have think. the irascible block That's right. tomorrow. So last week on the final call, I said Rivian, it was trading at 33. looked like it was going to go to 40. It's at 40. Now it looks like there's no overhead resistance. Look at that thing. It looks like a cold spring. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.